Hello and welcome to Super Excited with Stefan Roost. I'm Mike, the facilitator of this podcast. In this episode, Stefan talks to David Johnston. David Johnston started his first multi-million dollar company at the age of 19 in the biofuels industry and then went on to co-found seven tech startups before the age of 30. His work in crypto and blockchain includes co-founding BitAngels in 2013, the DAP Fund in 2014, and a venture studio in 2018. In this episode, Stefan and David discuss funding, space exploration, the Inflation Reduction Act, when England legalized innovation, and building in a bear market. Enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, super excited to be back again. And today we have David Johnston. So Johnston with a T, by the way. Um, you know, sort of very successful entrepreneur, been entrepreneur most of your career. Um, you know, I think started at 19 in, in, in sort of the renewable space, right? So you got into renewables before anybody or it was even a hot topic and sort of launched seven, eight companies by the, before you were 30 and, and sort of, then got into Bitcoin, uh, did a lot of work in the Bitcoin really early on, um, seeded a lot of companies, um, launched venture studios, lived in Austin, and then moved to Puerto Rico now. Welcome, David Johnson, now COO at DLTX. Thank you for being here. Stay, hey, Stefan. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I met you a while back. And so I was always, you know, intrigued by your presence and your, you know, I think you grew up on the East Coast, and then you went, oh, you traveled all across the US and then around the world and always looked at the world as a very decentralized, um, or, you know, sort of economy, if you will, right, where you could then do business around the world. And I was always really impressed by that. And uh, what really got you in that bug and, and, and what, what, what got you going early on? Why at 19 to start a business? What, uh, what really was the impetus for that? Well, um, even before I did uh, the biodiesel facility when I was 19 and got into renewables, I've been building internet companies uh, when I was a teenager. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and, you know, internet 1.0, like I was a 90s kid. Right. So it's the late nineties. The internet has taken off. I didn't want to be left out of that. So built an online publishing company back when like that was cutting edge. Um, and then, you know, sort of went from there, uh, building, uh, online investment, uh, fund basically doing second life. If you remember 2006, yeah. the metaverse existed in the form of second life, right? Which is when my first exposure to virtual currency was the Linden dollar. Right. You could buy yep. and sell property online with the Linden dollar, which is, you know, an amazing experience and a great precursor for, right, discovering Bitcoin in 2012 and be like, oh, yeah, digital currency. I know exactly what people are going to do with this because I've seen what people did, did, did with this, yep. right? People have built stock markets in world in 2006, right? People had built, yep. you know, all these property rights based systems. It was sort of really incredible, but I also saw sort of how that got shut down. Right. The regulators knocked on the door of Linden Labs and they're like, uh, guys, do you know what people are doing in Second Life? Like, you have to shut all of this down. No, it can't be gambling or stock markets or any of this online. And so, you know, seeing that experience and sort of going from the incredible growth trajectory it had to like getting shut down. Um, and basically they killed all the most interesting 
uh, use cases that all had to do with finance and money and assets and the things people wanted to do. You know, yeah. uh, when I saw Bitcoin in 2012, I was like, oh, wow, okay, it's the Linden dollar, but this time it's run by math and not owned by a company and built on open source. Yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen here, except for now there's no door in California to knock on and say, you know, yeah. cut all this stuff out, right? So that was sort of the beginning of the adventure. But, you know, I mean, my, my original inspiration uh, to your question was, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to colonize space, right? Um, you know, sort of that uh, romant romantic idea of, you know, starting yeah. another civilization and, you know, humanity becoming multiplanetary always really appealed to me from a very young age. And I was smart enough to know that I was not going to be the NASA scientist that got selected, like statistically, right? There are only like a hundred of them. And so like, yeah. I'm like, there are millions of people who, you know, can build a tech company and become wealthy. That seems a lot more statistically likely. And then I can just buy a ticket to space as opposed to like, I'm going to be the, you know, genius scientist who gets into the NASA program. And so, you know, I basically decided when I was like five or 10 years old, okay, I'm just going to build tech companies and that'll be my means of accruing enough uh, resources to eventually go to space. So that was my original inspiration. Still a space nerd. Um, one of the investors in Space Fund. Uh, we fund a lot of early space, uh, early stage uh, new space tech for all the stuff sort of after transport. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of a nice, a fun side hobby until like it's more than a side hobby, hopefully in like the next 10, 15 years. But, you know, thank you, SpaceX, Firefly, all the people that have, you know, radically driven down the cost of uh, getting to space. Um, but yeah, it's been a fun journey, especially the last 10 years in, in blockchain has been pretty amazing. You know, um, sort of a lot of the stuff we, we dreamed of has finally come to fruition with, uh, with open public blockchain. Yeah. So yeah, it's been good hanging out with you in the ecosystem and seeing the stuff that you've built. And it was great running into you in Austin and consensus. And yeah. Yeah. Fun to hang out today. Yeah. No, thanks. I think I want to come back to the SpaceX stuff because, you know, I think a lot of us in, in crypto land or in metaverse land are sort of all um, sort of all in, in a way of science nerds, right? Or, or, or science fiction yeah. nerds, right? We love the ability of new frontiers and, and, and building out new systems that allow us to learn from the existing systems and then redeploy them. But I'm always intrigued. You know, people say, what do you want to do in space? Why would you want to live in space? We've got the planet here. It's beautiful here on the one hand. And then on the other hand, it's like, what investments do you make or do I need to do in a space fund? Why would I put money in a space fund? What are the things that I need in space, right? And I think, you know, are you seeing interesting innovations in that area? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting innovation, and there's effectively two different answers, right? There's the Elon Musk answer, which is like we're going to go terraform Mars, which I'm yeah. I'm all for, but will take a take a longer period of time. Then there's the Jeff Bezos answer, which is, hey guys, we can just turn the moon into the new industrial base, right? All the yeah. Western countries don't want to use the Earth to make heavy toxic you know, manufacturing, but we all need these products, right? So the yeah. West shipped it to China, China is shipping yeah. it to Africa, right? Eventually nobody's <laughs> going to want these processes in their backyard, right? And so they have to go somewhere. And the moon is a really natural, 
sort of solution because you think about a place with no air to pollute, no water yep. to pollute, no neighbors to annoy, no, you know, humans to, uh, you know, poison with, well, with these toxins. Like yeah. it's, it's the perfect sort of desolate place to do the world's heavy manufacturing. And it's relatively trivial energetically to get off the moon and back down the uh, gravity well into the earth, right? It's very hard earth. to get off the earth, but it's very easy to get back down. Um, and so the idea that, you know, uh, Amazon's going to basically try to move their uh, industrial base on the moon, I think it's, it's pretty cool. It's actually very sort of realistic and uh, and practical and also will make them a lot of money. And so, you know, if you look at what Musk has pulled off with SpaceX, it used to cost $10,000 a kilo to launch something yeah. into orbit. And with Falcon 9, he brought that down to $1,000 a kilo. Yeah. And with Starship, yeah. that'll come down to like a couple hundred dollars a kilo to get something into orbit, right? So he's reduced it by 100x uh, the cost to get to orbit. And that's just going to open up a ton of stuff. But, you know, most of space today is satellites, right? You know, whether it's yeah. imaging or weather or communications or, you know, now Starlink, right? Internet yep. falling from yep. the sky anywhere on the face of the earth at broadband speeds yep. is incredible game changer for people yep. that still sort of live billions with, with remote access. Right. So I think that's, that's really interesting, but like you said, it's, it's science fiction, but I think I would argue it's also philosophy, right? What's, what it, what's interests me is, is philosophy and history and ethics and morality and if you're yep. interested in those things, you see them reflected in the systems that you live in, right? The U.S. is an expression of a certain set of principles, yep. right? Yep. You know, people moving to Puerto Rico are driven by a certain set of principles. They're like, I want to build in this industry. I can't get any clarity from the U.S. It's either move to yep. Europe or Asia or work here in Puerto Rico, right? Where the government's yep. been more friendly and more open and, you know, given that clarity. And so, you know, for me, it has a lot more to do with the principles uh, than anything else. And that's what has really driven me in blockchain, right? And that's why I wrote the paper on uh, the general theory of decentralized applications in 2013. Yeah. It, was, it was really a, um, sort of setting out four principles. It's like open source, you know, transparent blockchains, peer-to-peer -peer networks, and tokens are the way that we can build these systems economically, that's what made Bitcoin successful, right? It wasn't just that we need a replacement for, you know, fiat currency. And that's a whole other morality, like honest money that isn't, you know, printed in the background, people to really understand how it works. And, you know, politicians tricking people, with the, oh, the customer prices went up. How did that happen? <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, the 80% of all dollars in existence that you printed the last two years, that might have something to do with it. But by the way, the, oh my God, the, the, the Orwellian naming, I don't know if you saw last night, uh, they passed the yeah, of course I saw reduction that. act. Yeah, and it's exactly. like, yeah, that's what we need. The, if we just spend the three equation of a trillion dollars. <laughs> Oh my God. It's like, no, I don't think printing more money is going to help reduce inflation. That may have the opposite effect. It's like, come on, this is economics 101, but you know, politicians don't exist. And by the way, in that budget, the IRS gets $80 billion to buy new cars and be able to oh, hound man. down people below earning less than $200,000, right? So it's like, 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit ironic. It's a bit ironic. But yeah, I mean, so, you know, it's it's been great, though, the last 10 years because it's a time of such optimism because yep, you have exactly. for the first time the technologies by which to opt out of violence-based systems that you don't like and replace them with math-based systems, right? And so that's what I am, right? I'm a freedom maximalist. I want as much freedom and prosperity for human beings as can be achieved. And, and Bitcoin plays a part in that. And Ethereum plays a part in that. And many of these protocols can play a part in that. But uh, it's not just limited to currency. It's like, how can I take every part of my life out of a monopoly structure, out of a violence-based yeah. structure, and put it into a voluntary, peaceful, math-based uh, type of framework instead. And is that when you, a lot of the times, I think, you know, when, when you look, Google your name, you, you come up as a decentralist, right? And, and is that something that yeah. you've coined? And it, does that sort of, that sort of, to me, sort of relates to a lot of the math and, and your thinking there. Is that right? Or how would you, what is a decentralist? Maybe you can explain it better. I think that's probably a pretty, pretty good definition of my philosophy. Um, you know, famously, uh, Thomas uh, Jefferson was asked, uh, you know, uh, how would you improve the government? And his, I think his reply famously was divide the parish into wards, as in decentralize, 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 right? Push, yeah. push power to the edge of the network, right? The smallest yeah. possible unit of people making decisions for themselves provides the best outcome, right? What historically, what are the worst outcomes? It's when you've got an extreme concentration of power in a tiny number of hands, whether that's a fascist yep. regime or, you know, a communist central party or whatever, like planning on behalf of a billion people as if such a thing were possible. It, I mean, yep. it, you can get into the information theory side of that, right? They, they can't possibly have enough information about the interests, desires and will of those, you know, billion people on which they pretend to, you know, uh, plan on behalf of, like, that's just impossible, right? According to information theory. So if you say, okay, well, how do I get the most prosperous society? You know, it looks like Switzerland. It looks like Liechtenstein. It looks like these places that are very decentralized in their governance, where there's a lot of local control and you can have local innovation, you know, and people are directly involved. And even better is just property rights. I like this yeah. thing. I can buy this thing. I don't need anybody's permission to buy this thing. Yeah. And that was the beautiful thing. That was the, really the beautiful thing about Bitcoin was, you know, before that I was involved in, you know, rallies and, and, and efforts with Ron Paul to end the Fed or audit the Fed. Yeah. And it's like, I could have spent the next 50 years trying to convince 51% of the population, you know, that, that this was the correct, you know, that there should be basic financial audits of, of the central bank or that, you know, inflation was, you know, a hidden tax and all these things. Or I could just take my monetary value, opt out of the system, buy Bitcoin, and no longer be following the central bank's dictates. And that has been so nice, you know, because I, I feel like libertarians and, and, you know, I would say decentral, uh, a decentralist or a voluntarist, you know, these are sort of, yeah. these are offshoots of, of libertarian thought. And, you know, it's, it's tough. The older generation, it feels like their only answer was education, right? If only we could under, get enough people to understand these principles, then eventually you can win an election. Then eventually, 
these things will be reformed. Um, but rather now we have a technological solution where you can immediately take personal action to see this thing in your lives. And that was really inspirational to me. And that's why I wrote the paper and, and pushed, you know, okay, let's build decentralized applications that do all of these things, right? That provide data storage, that provide internet connection, that provide, you know, everything we need in life and using this new format, you know, to me, that's, that's hugely exciting. Yeah, I think one of the things that, 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 that you know, you you also not only just, just sort of went in as a decentralist yourself, you took action and supported the ecosystem, right? You built a DAP fund, you built BitAngels where you wanted to aggregate community members to co-invest in new angel startups in this decentral world, right? Um, you know, how, how did you gather people together in 2012? I mean, it was really early on in the industry, uh, you know, it was you, you would go to meetups and there were maybe 10 people there or if at all, or, you know, how would you gather people and, and find like-minded people that were invest wanted to invest and see the furtherment of this? Well, I mean, at first the community was almost entirely online, right? Um, yeah. 2012, it was all on Bitcoin talk forums. It was on IRC. It was on uh, our Bitcoin on Reddit um, were sort of the places people gathered. It didn't really materialize into the real world until May of 2013, when the Bitcoin Foundation put on the very first uh, their their very first Bitcoin conference, and they were expecting yeah. I don't know four or five hundred people, and all of a sudden, twelve hundred people showed up in San Jose, California, and you know it was like this Woodstock moment. It's like oh, there's Roger Ver, there's Vinnie Lingham, there's you know, all these early guys, you know, and, and, you know, the people you've seen online and all of a sudden everybody's in person. And, you know, uh, famously, Michael Turpin uh, turned to me after the first uh, day of the conference. We had just met at, you know, uh, a restaurant afterwards. And uh, he said, it's weird, you know, VCs are starting to cut checks into the space, right? Coinbase had just been funded by Union Square Ventures, right? And yeah. he's like, there's yeah. no angel group, though. And I was like, uh, how about we start one? <laughs> and he, he was like, uh, sounds great. We'll call it Bit Angels. I was like, wonderful. I'll put the website up tonight. And he's like, cool. We'll have our first meeting tomorrow at the second day of the conference. And I was like, great. I'll make the post. And so we put up a post on Reddit, right? <laughs> and we're, you know, invited a few people. We crashed like the hackathon room and just like took a, a table in the corner. And all of a sudden, 30 people showed up, right? And there's, you know, Roger and, and all those early guys. And we're all talking about the next protocol, the next thing that we want to fund. We decided to have a decentralized angel group. So most angel groups yeah. at the time were like one city, like the angels yeah. of New York or the angels of San Francisco. Um, but we're like, we're digital natives. Let's just host these things online, right? And we'll do a weekly pitch from anybody yeah. in the community is working on something new, right? And so that's sort of how it started out. And we had chapters in all the different cities. Like Matt Rozak, okay, you're the, the head of the Chicago chapter. And, you know, this guy's the head of the Hong Kong chapter and Singapore chapter or whatever. And that, that structure brought together sort of a huge number of people. And then Michael uh, Turpin got BitAngels into TechCrunch. And yeah. then we got a lot of attention. Oh, there's a bunch of angel investors getting into Bitcoin. That we had like 500 members you know, attending our, our stuff and investing. And so, you know, it really, really took shape when J.R. Willett uh, out in uh, Seattle uh, proposed MasterCoin, right? 
He's like, hey, guys, Bitcoin's great. Let's put assets and we'll put the details of those assets into the OpReturn field. I mean, he used something yep. previous to OpReturn, but later ended up uh, using the OpReturn field. And you had like 40 or 80 bytes, just a tiny amount of information you could put basically in the memo field of a Bitcoin yep. transaction. But that was right. just enough right, to be able to sort of interpret that information and say, okay, this isn't a normal Bitcoin transaction. This is uh, Tether, USD, right, USDT, which ended up getting built on MasterCoin later. So so anyway, that was August of 2013. Uh, JR reached out to the BitAngels. I was the executive director at the time. And I said, this is really cool. I spent like four days going down the rabbit hole understanding uh, what he was proposing, understanding there wasn't really a technological barrier. There was a political and social barrier, which is the core developers didn't want assets on Bitcoin. That's what I figured out. I was like, mm, pretty sure this is a decentralized system. I don't need your permission. I'm not going to ask for your permission. And so I just went ahead and uh, you know wrote the information report, released it to the group, and you know said, hey, guys, let's let's fund this. And, and they're like $5 million worth of Bitcoin flowed in during the last couple of days of the token wow. sale. Um, and that was a huge amount of money at the time, right? People that hadn't done even yeah. like crowd sales or, or, or crowdfunding that large at the time. And that was like a huge spark. It's like, oh, wow, there's a lot of pent up interest to fund these type of things and put additional capabilities on top of the Bitcoin. Uh, blockchain. So that was like, that was the spark, you know, MasterCoin eventually rebranded to Omni protocol. That's where Tether got built on. That's where a lot of the early people yeah. made their start. Vitalik was making proposals to the MasterCoin foundation about doing scripting on top of Bitcoin. Um, the Bitcoin core developers like drew the line there. They're like, get out of here, kid. This is, this is, we don't want this on Bitcoin. And so he's like, all right. So, you know, uh, uh, they, for better or worse, he, he left uh, Bitcoin and, and started Ethereum shortly after he shared the white paper with us, you know, and we started all kind of getting into a Skype group. And that Skype group just blew up to like 200 people all interested in programming on top of a blockchain, right? That's that's what people wanted to be able to do. And smart contracts and that, that concept of scripting on a blockchain that Vitalik had with his paper is really inspirational. And so... I remember going to the uh, Miami Bitcoin conference in January of 2014, right? This is, if you've seen the video online, this is famously where Vitalik unveils sort of what we've all been talking about yep. on, on Skype and planning and people are sort of like forming the team. Um, and man, I've never seen so many people follow a speaker out the door after his talk, like 400 people just left left wow. i didn't even know who was after him but they all left the hall right and just mobbed him uh in in the side it was like watching the network effect of bitcoin developers sort of leave the room right and everybody's like why did why does ethereum have all the mind share it's like they gave tokens to every developer that contributed to ethereum before the genesis block like they they were really smart you know i, I had conversations with talk about this early on it's like you know, he wanted to initially just do mining. I was like, no, we got to reward developers that can contribute code, right? We have to reward people that don't have a mining machine, but maybe have, you know, Bitcoin they can contribute, right? They can do that provably, right? Now that we have, you know, cryptographically provable money. And so that was sort yeah. of the, the holy trinity is, you know, okay, yes, we're going to reward miners, but we're also going to reward developers. 
And we're also going to reward people that provide capital. And that created like the basis of a much broader, you know, developer ecosystem. The mindshare that they still have a huge part of today, I think came out of sort of those early uh, incentives that really rewarded not just people with computation, but this is a network based on the idea of scripting. You need to, you know, reward all these people that are going to write the scripts, right? And that's, I think, what's made the EVM, you know, the Ethereum virtual machine, yep. such a powerful base, like lingua franca, everybody uses, even if they're not on Ethereum anymore, right? You know, you know, all these other protocols all use the EVM because nobody wants to yeah. rewrite all their code, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> So you know it's it's been wild to to watch it uh, watch it grow, but it's been a, a very fun last ten years. I guess I got into Bitcoin in June of 2012, so I guess I'm I'm officially just past my 10 year anniversary. So, congrats! Yeah, no, amazing. I mean, I think one of the things. So I mean, if I summarize quickly, right? You went through Second Life, where you saw the potential of really yeah. what digital currencies can do in a virtual world you saw the infrastructure being built out in a decentralized nature yeah a scripting language that allows to be built on there um but ultimately it was the networking of what this decentralized nature and what could be done in terms of business on this decentralized economy a scripting language and then you went out and you know, you've launched BitAngels to invest in all these companies building applications and services around that, and ultimately a scripting language that would allow to build applications on there. And then you launched a DAP foundation or a DAP fund or something, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically created the first VC that did all tokens. So we didn't make any yeah. uh, traditional equity investments, right? Um, you know, as far as I'm aware, it's, it's sort of the first maybe beyond people that were like pure Bitcoin, the first all token yeah. uh, venture fund. This is yeah, uh, yeah, early 2014. And so, you know, ended up writing the informational report on Ethereum and on so many of the early protocols because, you know, at that time the spark had been lit and, you know, people like, oh, if I if I do a token sale, you know, these these BitAngel guys will, will throw Bitcoin at me. And, yeah. you know, that was the spark because that was that was a big debate early on like yeah. should ethereum even among their founders like should ethereum be a company and take a, you know i think they had arranged like yep. a 20 million dollar check from google ventures and just yep. you know go be crypto crypto google or should they be a token based you know token sale based you know um sort of uh non-profit like mozilla foundation right, that used you know uh the the community funding uh, instead of corporate funding, right? And there was yep. sort of a, a big debate in their early, you know, uh, team. And eventually Vitalik and the others decided, okay, we're going to go the nonprofit route. We're going to set up in Switzerland. We're going to do a token sale. And, you know, that uh, that eventually won out. And then sort of everybody copied uh, their model from there, right? Um, not only do you need the token, but you need to be in the right place, right? The U.S. hadn't given any guidance. Nobody knew how to comply in the U.S. And so it's like, all right, off to Switzerland. Right. Yeah. And, you know, um, the part of the story most people don't know is, you know, Ethereum basically ran out of money in late 2015 because they had, a you know, 40, 45 developers all over the world. They had yeah. raised a bunch of, of Bitcoin, you know, 17 million worth. But then you had the bear market hit. Right. And that yeah. 17 million worth of Bitcoin became 10 million worth of Bitcoin, became 5 million worth of Bitcoin, whatever it was at the end of the day. And so, 
you know, they really sort of were ultimately forced to make very practical decisions. Okay, we don't have time to perfect proof of stake. We're going to launch a proof of work. You know, um, we need to get this thing out the door and we can iterate from there. Um, but they managed to sort of get the, the core things uh, launched and, you know, the project uh, finally took off. But, you know, I remember having defend, having to defend it for like two years. People like, oh, it's never going to launch. And, you know, how can you support these guys? It's like, I think they're making an honest effort. I think they'll get across the line, you know, and they, and they finally did. <laughs> and so my reputation recovered a little bit as, as Ethereum uh, succeeded, you know, and uh, kind of went from there. Yeah, I think you know it, it's it's funny again, right? So that that whole that whole period was really around crowdfunding, right? I mean, you went to the community that felt they wanted to uh, support and endorse something where they saw this would only further the growth of of this decentralized economies um, and invest yeah. in protocols. And then ultimately, the government came in and again stopped the crowdfunding. Right? You you could only allow certain individuals to invest. You couldn't allow and, and, and the U.S. always was on the sidelines. It was not allowed to participate. And so um, that was super surprising to me. Why, why would you push away that innovation, that drive, and particularly, the, you know, the technology hub and that the U.S. is, was, um, you know, um, all of a sudden is being pushed to other places, Switzerland, Japan, you know, everywhere, Singapore, you know, all these other places around the world. Except or we, or maybe Puerto Rico even, right? Not in the U.S. We don't want to be in the U.S., um, which was really weird, which I guess is it's, part of the reason why almost, you Puerto Rico. Well, it's almost like there's a conflict of interest at play, right? Like mm-hmm. in 2014, <laughs> you know, you have, you have the bit license yeah. emerge yeah, in New yeah. York, right? Yeah. Clearly the banks don't want Bitcoin in their backyard. Right. In the time you had bit instant, you had all a lot of the action early yeah. on was in New York. Yeah. And then yeah. the bit license gets passed and it's like, okay, if you want to be a startup in Bitcoin, you need $30 million and a three-year license. And oh, by the way, we haven't figured out the rules yet. And it's going to be tougher than being a bank. Like uh, as, a, as a broke startup, that doesn't work, right? So you basically pushed, they basically pushed all crypto out of New York, right, in 2014. And I I remember, and then sort of the Bitcoin community became nomadic and much more global, probably for the better, right? It wasn't all based in New York. I mean, people flowed to Shanghai, right, for a couple of years, you know, up until 17, when uh, China shut down the exchanges, um, you know, it was, was, that was the epicenter. I went to China like 25 times. You know, that's where the exchanges were, the miners were, you know, uh, everything was really happening, you know, and then China repeated the mistake, right? They kicked out the the community and people, yeah. you know, continue looking, looking elsewhere, right? To Singapore, to Portugal, to, you know, Germany, to Puerto Rico. And for Fine, the foundations, whatever, yeah. they really found their home in Switzerland, right? Yeah. You know, most of the foundations are, are now in Switzerland because the Swiss were smart enough to give clear guidance on like yeah. how to set up and how to, you know, uh, protect consumers and, and follow the rules and, and make the proper disclosures. And so, you know, that's how DLTX ended up in Norway, right? Yeah. To their credit, the Norwegians have been very friendly and clear about how to be a blockchain company, right? And I really like this idea. So sort of I went through through this whole evolution, right? From 
you know, entrepreneur to angel investor to VC to running my own family office. Um, but finally, it was like, if I want to get to scale, I need a vehicle where a ton yeah. of people <laughs> in the public can all participate, right? And that's a public company. But the US, it's yeah. really expensive to become a public company. And so you sort of need somewhere to start. And Norway is much more affordable to be a public company. And so, you know, we talked to the regulators. There was an existing metals mining company called Element. Yeah. And we explained to them Bitcoin mining. We're like, guys, this is just another type of mining. And they were like, you're right. You know, this, this fits the criteria. And so they let us, you know, come in um, as a mining company and take over this, this shell, you know, and to their credit, they're, they're right, right? Digital mining, traditional mining, you know, it, it looks very similar with the power consumption and, you know, building out these facilities and, and the way it functions and the commodity that it produces, right? is how a lot of uh, countries would define uh, Bitcoin. And so, you know, that was sort of the spark. But, you know, yeah, the inspiration for, for DLTX is like, okay, I want to fund more of these protocols, right? I want to, you know, continue this, this, this revolution that's happening. Um, but yeah, it's hard to do that in the US. And so, you know, okay, uh, it's a lot easier to have a foreign company if you're based in Puerto Rico. So, you know, you move to Puerto Rico as, as an American, all of a sudden you have a different regulatory environment uh, in Puerto Rico and you can, you know, run a company in Europe. You can be involved uh, there and really sort of take it to the next level. And so I guess DLTX is probably one of the first all Web3, all protocol based companies in the world, right? We don't have any traditional customers. The customers yeah. are the protocols, right? We provide yeah, hash rates. To the Bitcoin protocol yeah. and earn Bitcoin, yeah. right? We yeah. <laughs> store data and get rewarded by uh, Filecoin with Filecoin tokens, right? The yeah. same with the Helium and you know providing decentralized internet bandwidth, you know, and rewarded with H and T. The same with Pocket Network and running all of those nodes, those blockchains for developers and earning Pocket, right? And so that idea of okay, we're going to build the real big infrastructure for money, compute storage and bandwidth like i like to say no matter what wins in web3 i guarantee you they'll be using money compute storage and bandwidth right by definition if they're actually a decentralized project they'll be using that decentralized infrastructure so that's kind of the vision is you talked earlier about the fat protocol uh thesis yep. and this is this sort of a brilliant paper written in 2016 by the folks at union square ventures and they're like look guys Blockchains aren't like Internet 1.0. Most of the value is accruing to the protocol layer, right? You look at HTTP or TCP IP, those are very thin yeah, protocol TCP. layers, right? They're basically just yeah. communication. But here, having yeah. a ledger, having all the assets reside there, these fat protocols, all the value is flowing there. And that's what we've really seen. You look at Ethereum, you know, ETH has accrued more value than every application built on top of it combined. Right. Because to use the network, you have to use ETH. And so people have treated it as sort of a decentralized money uh, for the purposes of funding. People raise an ETH, they spend ETH, they, beef, ETH gets burned in the transaction. Right. And so, you know, that's sort of a great example. And, you know, I think we're going to see the exact same thing, but play out at the next level. All these protocols need these base things, money, 
compute storage bandwidth. That is the FAT protocol thesis of the FAT protocol thesis, right? It's like of all the protocols that are accruing all the value, it's the infrastructure layer they all need that accrues the value from them, right? And that, so that's, that's the entire thesis for, for DLTX. But having, you know, built these Bitcoin facilities, Filecoin facilities, we have all these recurring revenues and we're such a low cost producer. Like even here in the bear market, like we're producing these tokens way below the cost of the market. One, it's the best way for me to get these tokens. Like no one will sell me Bitcoin for $6,500, but I can mine Bitcoin for $6,500, right? With cheap enough electricity and good operators and enough scale, right? And and the thing, it's true for Filecoin. It's true for Helium. It's true for Pocket. And so one, if I have that thesis, right, of, of wanting to run the infrastructure, running the rails, because that's where all the value accrues, then, okay, I want to accrue as many of those tokens. And the most yep. efficient way to do that is to run the infrastructure and vertically integrate the stack ourselves, right? Yep. So that's that's sort of how we ended up getting there, though, you know, definitely people are like a public company. As a year don't understand, we're going to run this thing decentralized style. You know, offices are all over the world. You know, it's all built built on open source. Everything is a protocol, right? We're building yep. smart contracts. Like you don't understand, we're going to take the, the the guts of this thing and basically map it to Web three, right? And push decentralization as as far as we can, as fast as we can. Which is music to to I think a lot of the audience's ears, and 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 we are super excited about exactly that mission. But I want to come back to Oslo and Switzerland, right? I mean, you know, sure. today, you know, most foundations are are setting up in in, in very jurisdiction friendly environments as well as in um, slightly lower cost environments, right? And they used to start off in maybe you'd go to Singapore and then you'd go to Seychelles and then you maybe go to Panama or you'd go other jurisdictions. And ultimately, as you sort of look for more trust and faith in an economy, you tend to look where there's more stability, right? And both Switzerland and Norway represent some pretty stable, decentralized economies by nature, right? They're federalistic uh, in their in their nature. Um, and why did you choose, I was just out of curiosity, because I remember you were on the verge of moving to Switzerland. You were really yeah. pro Zug, and, and you know, and then um, now, you know, then you chose Norway, which I thought was a really interesting move. And I'm just intrigued because we're right now at the concept at the verge of I don't want to be in Panama anymore. You know, we're building now something that that, that is really foundational, and I need to choose the mm-hmm. jurisdiction, and it's not easy. Um, no, you know, there's, there's definitely you a lot of challenges. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> love Switzerland. Love Switzerland. You know, yeah. I love the decentralized nature of the governance. You know, it's the home to so many of the protocols. You know, Crypto Valley yeah. has created a huge number of jobs, and the technology development going on, you know, in the Greater Zurich area is is incredible. Yeah. Um, the challenge was that you may remember there was uh, this lockdown thing. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was a virus going around. And, you know, it might have been illegal for Americans to travel to Europe for a couple of years. I don't know why. Maybe they thought we had that virus thing. They didn't have any of it over there, I'm sure. But it's like, for you know, the absurdity, right? But, you know, I literally yeah, couldn't like... return to, to Switzerland, right? And so it's like, okay, well, I still want to build in Europe. But as a U.S. person, how do I navigate that, 
right? And right. you talk to a bunch of lawyers, and you're like, oh, if you're under the regulatory regime as a bona fide Puerto Rican, right? You live here, you work here, your family's here, all that, you know, um, you don't have to worry about uh, some of those U.S. regulations. And all of a sudden you can, you can operate in Europe more freely. And so if you're going to come from any U.S. jurisdiction, Puerto Rico is yeah. effectively the, friend, the friendliest place you can come from, right? And so I still spend a lot of time in Europe. It's nice. They finally opened it back up for Americans to, to travel there only like last November, right? You know, we're talking about world's reopening oh, wow. for 10 months. So, you know, I, I finally flew into uh, Norway, but we had done the entire merger, you know, the reverse merger, um, what they call a share exchange agreement when we did the merger with Element um, and made it DLTX. We had done all of that remote. We had never met the team. We couldn't go over there. You couldn't, you know, it was, it was Zoom, like everything was over zoom right and so Amazing. you know it's it's a it's 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 really incredible you know to to answer your question though about the jurisdictions is like i had to understand it from a u.s person perspective right because you can right. expatriate but it's really difficult in the u.s to expatriate there's a 65 percent exit tax there's a five-year tax audit there's you know interviews at foreign embassies and there's a you know year or two year long wait to do your interview and you are applying for permission from the state department to have the, the, the ability, you know, the, the, the blessing, their blessing to give up your U S passport and they don't have to say yes. Right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, okay. Uh, one, that's kind of crazy Two, like, okay. You know, then it's hard to get back into the U S if you want to visit yeah. and see, you know, relatives or whatever. And so it's like, or, you could fly two hours south of Miami, live in a tropical paradise, hang out with all your friends and, you know, still be a U.S. person, but not under that regulatory regime. Yeah. Like that sounds like a pretty good deal. Like that's if, if you didn't understand why everyone in the U.S. is moving to Puerto Rico that's in crypto, yeah. that's the reason. Right. Yeah. It's effectively you go down that decision tree and it's so much easier to just land, get a driver's license, buy a house, set up an office and live here for you know at least six months a year but people are like oh how do you live there six months a year i was like i get to live here six months a year it's wonderful lifestyle there's three million people in puerto rico i'm not exactly yeah, getting no. island fever like there's there's four sushi places within four blocks of my house and i live in the suburbs right like there's there's lots to do right um and so you know as a U.S. person, being in Puerto Rico and working with a, with a public company in Europe just ended up being the best combination. And I, I would say Switzerland versus Norway. Norway, the Oslo exchange, recently got rolled into Euronext. So now it's part of the largest exchange okay. in Europe. And so Switzerland has yep. their own exchange, but they don't really have that equivalent sort of size of, of a public market. And so it's effectively the largest public market in the world that is crypto friendly um, that it could get into, you know, in an affordable and friendly way. Right. And so for Europeans, it looks different. Like, oh, they don't have the U.S. regulatory issue. Uh, maybe it's tax optimization. OK, they're moving to Switzerland. They're moving to Portugal is very uh, friendly to crypto right now. And a ton of people have, have moved down there and others are going to Scandinavia. You know, it's it's as the nomad capitalist would say, you know, everyone goes where they're treated best. Right. Yeah. And that's that's very true right now. It's just sort of a shakeup of where that is. That used to be yeah. the U.S. mainland. People used to aspire to move to New York 
Yeah, and now yeah, I'll definitely. get on a I'll get on a call and oh, where are you guys at? And somebody's still in New York. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I hope you're able to get out. <laughs> and they're and they're like and they're like, I know, I know. I'm trying to get to Puerto Rico. I you know, there's nothing going on. I like I, I want to be down there. And it's funny, just like yeah. it's flipped the script, right? For for half a century, like it was people leaving Puerto Rico to go to New York for opportunity. And now literally every friend I had in New York in 2013 now lives in Puerto Rico. They had to come here for opportunity, right? And, you know, credit to the Puerto Rican, you know, officials that, you know, saw that opportunity and said, oh, yeah, we're going to be friendly to crypto. The U.S. is making a mistake here. You know, we'll, we'll take all those entrepreneurs, technologists, capital, jobs, and all the rest. And so, you know, it's, it's amazing sort of how it's shaking up, but it's almost becoming like a Singapore in America, yeah. right? That, that think- free port, which I think will be the wealthiest place in the U.S., Exactly. If you look at the cities that are most prosperous right now in the, in the economy, I mean, from an economic standpoint, it's those that are, are, you know, pro, you know, really free, right? The freer you are, the, uh, and the lower tax you charge, the more yeah. talent you attract, right? Puerto Rico, you got Miami, you got Austin, you got Dublin, you got Lisbon, you know, you got Singapore. You got all these cities around the world that are really prosperous and attracting a lot of talent because they. I have the freedom of expression. I have opportunity, uh, economic opportunity, uh, which is so. I mean, uh, I just don't understand why we still feel, or there's a large portion of the population that still feels we need this centralized, big institutions. IMFs, the Washington DCs, the Brussels that, that have to um, really centralize the power and put me in charge. And when I say we got to fix it, we're going to fix it. Don't worry. I won't explain how I'm going to fix it. Just trust me. I'm going to fix it because you're not smart enough to understand the way I'm going to fix it. And by the way, I mostly don't even know myself, but uh, <laughs> I worked hard and I've been many years in politics and bureaucracy to get here. But um, maybe, I don't know. Um uh, it's just interesting we, to see that prosperity happens where actually you can let innovation thrive and, and people be creative. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's almost uh, tautological, right? Like innovations happens where it's allowed to happen, where it's possible to happen, right? Yeah. Um, I, think, I think historically, you know, we should, we should have a party uh, in two more years in, in uh, London uh, because yeah. I look back to you know, 1624, right? 1624 is when they passed uh, the parliament in the UK, uh, wasn't even the UK at the time, but England, uh, passed the Act on Patents and Monopolies. I don't know if you've ever looked this up. Um, no. But this, the, the kings and queens used to have the sole power to issue patents and monopolies. Basically, I can choose the one guy that's going to have the right to produce the wheat and the, you know, bowls and the clothes and like every industry, like it was the King's friends. Like you have the one legal right and and we're going to squash anybody else. We're going to squash anybody else that tries to make anything. And so the, the act on patents and monopolies in 1624 said, okay, first of all, not the King's power anymore. Second of all, we're going to say this is only applied to new inventions, like you don't get to give this stuff out forever on all industries and we're going to yep. limit it. And we're going to say, even for new inventions, 
only for 14 years, which you might recognize got copied as the same amount of time for patents in the US and most of the rest of the world after that, right? And so what you did is you opened everything up. All of a sudden, anybody could invent something, you know, gain from the fruits of their labor, right, for a time. And then over time, everyone was able to produce that product. It is not by accident that the Industrial Revolution started in England. It's because it's the only place it could have started because it's the only place right after the English Civil War that the parliament had taken enough power away from the central royalty to make it possible. Before that, effectively, royalty could break and stop any innovation. And finally, you had just a little bit of space for people to create you know, innovation and wealth and new businesses and new concepts. And that explosion of ideas and inventions that came out of that led effectively to the next 500 years of history, right? To the wealth of the UK, to, you know, Western countries, you know, invading and destroying other countries, you know, let's, let's not, (laughs) let's, let's not sugarcoat it. Right. And, and, you know, you look at this new wave and it's like, okay, it's going to happen. The places like you're saying that are most free, because they're the ones that don't have that conflict, right? The U.S. has become very centralized when it comes to finance. And the Fed and the banks aren't really excited about the idea <laughs> that there's a new kid yeah. in town who doesn't need their permission, who's just going to go and build. And that's very disturbing. Whereas, you know, um, and they're popping places up left in Europe right don't have that conflict. Know where they are. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, whereas, you know, places in Europe and other jurisdictions that don't have the world reserve currency don't have that no. conflict. And all of a sudden, you know, it's going there. But we'll see. We're starting to see just the inklings that, you know, some U.S., you know, senators, people, politicians are, you know, uh, starting to, to see the the value in crypto. You know, people like the Texas governor saying Texas is Bitcoin country. All the miners that have moved there, we have operations uh, that we've invested in in Texas. And, you know, as the Chinese kicked out the miners, a lot of that flowed into the West. A lot of the Western miners flowed into Texas. And so the jurisdictions that are being friendly are getting this huge boom, right, in jobs and technology and development. And so I think that's going to continue to build. But, you know, that's sort of the, one of the big prizes is flipping the U.S. to a friendly jurisdiction. And I hope that happens one day. It might take a while, you know, but we're, we're patient. Like, we'll, we'll get there. If not, you know, we'll turn, you know, Puerto Rico and all these other jurisdictions into the world's wealthiest places, right? Because that's where all the entrepreneurs are going. That's where all the intelligence is going. But I also found, you know, if you look at the way the – crypto landscape sort of evolved right it was all decentralized like you said right at the beginning we all met each other online right i didn't meet anybody in person it was all through you know bit forums and and bit talk and all these other forums reddit and, and where we all met each other and connected and were chatting and only once yep. you know where it, we actually met in person was some 2 years later and so through that nature I think we go back to being networked if we need to, right? I mean, we are in Telegram. We all live on Telegram. You launched a business using Zoom. I mean, you, 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, a whole public listed company, you know, reverse engineered uh, a, a listing. So it's, I mean, 
the, the way that that can happen today is is also super exciting, interesting to me. But other thing that I actually find uniquely different, right? When you refer to patent, a lot of people I talk to still have this mindset that I can only build a business if everything is patented. Whereas in technology, at least, I feel that you build the business based on the technology you share and get motivate others to build on top with you and also to verify that actually there's no fraudulent content in there. There's no way that you're trying to cheat on me. You open source the, the, your software, right? And so how yeah. do you see that transition and where do you see open source software play in, in sort of the fat protocol world and in the decentralized world that you're building and, and how maybe share your vision around that? Because I know you're a big proponent of open source software as well. Well, that's what I was going to say. Forget about Telegram. Signal is your friend. You know, open yeah. source <laughs> okay. you know, communication, <laughs> privacy is, is uh, you know, a good human right that we should be fighting for. Um, I mean, Telegram is fine if you're going to post cat photos and it's, you know, something you would tweet out anyway. Who cares? Yeah. But if you have any expectation of freedom and, and privacy, I would I would not be using, you know, WhatsApp Telegram. or WeChat or Telegram yeah. or, or things like that, right? A lot of them are basically spyware. Um, but yeah, I mean, open source is the, the prerequisite for the existence of this space, right? You know, it's because Second Life wasn't open source that it could be shut down, right? By making everything open source, yeah, you get rid of copyright, you get rid of patents, you get rid of, you know, state control over over so much of this, right? And so, you know, mostly patents for blockchain companies tend to only exist as a defensive mechanism against people that would wield them against you, right? Um, but, you know, that, that can be also sort of a waste of time and, and energy. And so for protocols, you know, we're just going to open source everything. And the truth is, few people compete on technology. Most protocols compete on philosophy. It's yeah. not that Bitcoin couldn't copy the code from Ethereum. It's they would never copy the code from Ethereum because they have a fundamentally different philosophy about token economics, yeah. about uh, the way that they grow their blockchain, about so many other things. And it's true of Ethereum. You know, anybody can copy Ethereum. Uh, well, one, that wouldn't get you their network effect, but two... Everybody has a different philosophy. Oh, yeah, yeah, Ethereum's great, but to scale, we need this different algorithm. And they might be right. You know, Avalanche has seen a huge amount of success. <clears throat> they have good technology. They have a different philosophy. And they've implemented that philosophy uh, in their own blockchain, right? And so, you know, people often get very tribalistic. And they're like, oh, this is the one uh, project to rule them all. And it's like, one, that's not how technology works. That's not how network effects work. They tend to specialize around use cases. Uh, but three, like these are different philosophies and that's okay. We now have an open market for all these philosophies and people can try effectively any implementation, right? I'm excited about what uh, Neil Stevenson is doing with Laminar One, right? Having yeah. a layer one for the meta metaverse, I think is going to be really yeah. important. Like Nobody wants to live in the dystopian future run by Mark Zuckerberg and paying, you know, 47%, you know, creator fees to their, their, their corporate overlords, right? Like that sounds really terrible. How about we have an open source, neutral, you know, open platform 
uh, like Laminar One that they're developing for the metaverse, you know, that, that seems a lot more attractive to me. And so, you know, again and again in, in human history, people need, you know, open markets and platforms which are fair that they can, they can build on. And those are the ones that prosper the most, right? So yeah, I'm a huge proponent of open source. You know, it's basically required if you're going to do anything in this space. And the projects that haven't open sourced tend to just languish because, yeah. okay, yeah. nobody can build on top of it and nobody knows how to use it and nobody can trust it because they can't see the code, right? And so you've seen protocols that even didn't start open source eventually realize they need to get there, right? And in order to build their community, they've got to become open source, right? And so, you know, I think that that trend is inevitable uh, for most use cases. And I think you're, you know, calling it actually, you know, it's not necessarily technology itself. I mean, ultimately, that does play a role, but it's ultimately the philosophy, right? I'm I'm endorsing and embracing this technology because I like the philosophy. It resonates with me. And, and, and that culture is something I want to be a part of and help scale and take a have skin in the game, right? I mean, I think that's really um, the opportunity that 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 it represents for everybody to be a part of that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's sort of yeah, I mean, uh, it's a participation sport, right? That's what yeah. I love about crypto is you don't have to sit on the sidelines and oh, I'm a fan of that brand or that company. Like you are the operator. Right. You can run the infrastructure, you can run a node, you can, you know, get a wallet, you can tell your friends, right? There's no marketing department for, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum. It's the community telling exactly. friends, relatives, like this is something important. This is something I care about. This is something that's going to change the world for the better. Right. And it's had a huge transformation on the lives of the people around me, you know, that I got into Bitcoin in 2013, 2014. Right, had an enormous impact, and they could finally opt their wealth out of central control, out of the Federal yeah. Reserve monetary policy. I haven't, I haven't cared or thought about Fed Reserve policy in ten years, and I'm going to tell you, it's been a good ten years, right? So, <laughs> you know that that is now an area, right, effectively of innovation is like monetary policy, and that itself is a philosophy. Should you have a scarce number of units? Should you have an infinite number of units? turns out people prefer scarcity to infinite yep. artificial inflation. So, you know, who knew that, you know, they make such a choice after only 6,000 years of evidence from uh, the use of gold, right, to keep uh, sovereigns accountable, that now that we have digital gold, people would opt into that monetary policy. It's funny, we launched uh, Trueflation.com, right? And, and what we wanted to do and the reason why we felt that we needed to have an accurate and transparent calculation of what inflation really is um, and, and, and where it's then ultimately coming from. And then can we try and forecast where it's going to go? And what we're hearing a lot of the times is, oh, no, why don't you just try and predict what the government's doing and thereby predict what their result is going to be? But that's not the purpose of why we set it up. And so it's hard to sort of keep track and stay focused 
when you're constantly being bombarded with, oh, is it going to be 9.1 or what is it going to be? No, no. You can see we're, thir we're, we're 30 days, we're 30 times faster than they are. We have 20 million data items that we track versus the 10,000 that they track. And so why should we go back? Why would we go back? Why would we not do that? And you can see all of this online. And so when we did that, we felt that we have to stay that course and build other economic indicators around that. How do we create governance around that? And what does that look like um, if it's written in contracts? And how do you enable people to you know, protect their purchasing power? Because it's not, you know, you want to still facilitate trade. We, we still want to do business with each other. We still want to be able to communicate with each other without having to pay more. I mean, and in fact, if you look at it, it's only because of technology has inflation stayed so low. If it weren't for technology, everything else would be way out of whack and inflation would be much higher. Well, I mean, you can see those graphs online where it's like, you know, stuff uh, the market prices and all the prices yeah. go down stuff, the government prices and all the prices go up, right? Whether it's healthcare or, um, you know, something like education, which why on God's green earth, it should cost so much to get what is effectively now free information. Um, yeah. just, you know, to get that magical credential, it's ridiculous. Right. And so, but, but government doesn't have the price mechanism. And without no. the price mechanism, it doesn't have the information or the incentives to create rational programs, right? Yeah. And so it yeah. tries to approximate through politics, but it's a very poor approximation, also yeah. sort of led by lobbyists and special interests uh, as opposed to end users, right? And so, you know, that's the key is you have to, you know, blockchain is such an, an interesting combination of technical knowledge, but also economic and philosophical understanding of how these things work, because you have to really understand both, right? I knew a lot of uh, tech guys that they, they just didn't get Bitcoin because it was, it was an economic thing. It wasn't really a technology thing. You know, Satoshi didn't invent some brand new algorithm, right? He took existing pieces and put them together in a very novel way. And especially the tokenization and the fair way in which those tokens were distributed that was the breakthrough, right? That created the community, that created the incentives, that created the security model for Bitcoin uh, miners and everything else flowed from that. I remember in 2012, people were like, oh, I'd never send, you know, a large amount of money over, over Bitcoin. It's only, you know, secured by a few million dollars of hardware, right? But now there are billions <laughs> of dollars of hardware securing it. And people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's good for, you know, almost any use case I can imagine, right? And so you had to go through yeah. that bootstrapping phase, but people forget that bootstrapping phase, right? And tokens are how you do you need it. that bootstrapping phase is you need to incentivize, you know, people. I mean, then Filecoin did this amazingly well, right? And DLTX were one of the larger Filecoin miners in, in the Western world. You know, they yeah. said, all right, here's the incentive, go compete, you know, provide data storage on the network. And now it's 17 exabytes of data on Filecoin, it's 1% of the global cloud already. And it's only been like two years, you know, they've, they've grown as much as I think Apple and Google and Amazon did in their first six or seven years of existence. And it's all a decentralized crowd effort, right? Of thousands of miners all over the world. You know, that's, that's the model. If you understand that model, that's the breakthrough, 
you know, as much as the technology, and there is great technology being invented, zero knowledge proofs and all these other amazing things, but you have to combine that with the right incentives, the right economic model, really for anybody to care. It was interesting. One of the I saw a, a visual just the other day, and it was um, it was about Android, right? And Android actually, when Google bought it, it was like fifty million dollars when they bought it for you know. Um, and look at it now. You have this huge community. I think it's got the largest footprint of devices. Okay, maybe not in the U.S. or maybe not in Switzerland or Norway, but around the rest of the world, everybody's got an Android phone. And ultimately, that innovation that happens on the Android phone is actually really strong, right? And that open community, yeah. and it's taken years to get there, right? If you look at that acquisition, it was around 2007. So it's taken years to get there, to build it, to compete, to identify protocols, to integrate those and consistently deploy them, have backward compatibility, right? And you look at where Filecoins come and look at how far some of these, I mean, Bitcoins, I mean, in 12 years, you're now from zero when it was a pet project with all of these crazy guys that spent some of their money to buy this weird, wacky thing that you don't even know. It's all fake money anyway. And then now all of a sudden, Jerome Powell's on stage. They're saying, oh, I have to manage my policy based on these cryptocurrencies, right? It's like, that's that's a significant path. Where's Filecoin going to be? Where's where's the next? You know, what are the next things that are going to be disrupted? You know, uh, I think that's going to be really interesting to watch, and that's why this is the time to be super excited and and really yeah. be full of hope. And there's opportunity if governments would just only embrace this more, we'd see a lot faster evolution, many more jobs created. And it's a leap of faith that you have to go down to change systems and, and not be encumbered by what you've built up so far and, and trying to hold on with dear life for, you know, something that is built on a framework that was set up, you know, a couple hundred years ago before computers and electricity and stuff. But I think one thing you always advise people also, I think you just wrote a, a Medium post, right? It's like bear market built, right? So you want people to build in the bear market, right? And, and, yeah. and, and, and I mean, yeah, what, you know, why, what, maybe you want to share a bit of sort of, you know, why do you think you can make a difference? And, and, and uh, you know, isn't it harder to build in bear market because there's no money around? There's no investors around. I can't build in a bear market. It's too difficult. You know, it's like, what do you advise people that are excited about this video and I want to go into a decentralized world? Where do I start? Why should I build? Right. And well, first of all, like if you believe in this thesis, if you believe in these fundamentals, price go up, price go down, nothing's changed. Right. You yeah. look at the early days of the internet, you had the boom and the bust, right. Yeah. In, in 2000, the number of internet users never stopped growing. Right. You know, it was 100 million uh, back in 99 or 97 or whatever, and it just kept growing, right? Who, who cares about the internet boom and bust? People wanted this technology. They wanted this uh, utility, right? And so if you looked at the fundamentals, if you looked at the number of users, you could see the real future, right? And, and don't pay attention to the, the, the stock market up and down. You know, it's, it's that same idea. It's like, I went through the boom and the bust in 13, 14. I went through the boom and the bust in 17, 18. Here we are in the boom and the bust of 21 and 22. Like, but nothing has changed about the fundamentals. You know, when I got involved, there were less than a million people in the entire world doing crypto. Now there's like 150 million people 
right? So it's grown, you know, 150x, you know, this huge, huge amount of, of, of growth. And I can clearly see these technologies getting to a billion, several billion users, right, in the coming years, as interfaces get easier, as the, you know, platforms get more robust, you know, as scalability kicks in, as fees come down, you know, all of that's, that's coming, and none of that has changed. And the second thing I would emphasize is there's always money for good projects. This, yeah. In fact, the stuff, the, the shiny objects that we're all promising 100x tomorrow and get rich, you know, that stuff's gone away. The distractions yeah. have gone away. And all of a yeah. sudden, the people with real business models look really attractive, right? Oh, I can get 3x over, over three or four years. That seems like a great return. <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, the, the distraction goes away, you know, also it's easier to hire great talent. We're getting pulled into all these, these silly projects that were overfunded, you know, they've all run yeah. out of money, right? Because they yeah. don't know how to manage their treasury and it's great firms company. that have a, you know, very reliable business model. I mean, this is, this is why we built DLTX the way we did, right? You take our, our Filecoin division, right? We borrow yeah. Filecoin, we mine Filecoin, we repay Filecoin denominated in Filecoin. Like my margins haven't changed whether Filecoin was 50 or five. Like I'm doing exactly what I did before. I'm exactly. still profitable. Exactly. And people are like, oh, yep. but you're giving up the upside. I was like, yes, I'm also giving up all the downside <laughs> of the denomination, right? And so those, those sort of basic lessons that you learn by going through a bunch of bear markets, like to try to match your liabilities with the commodity you produce, those things and sticking to those things and having the discipline to stick to those things, even when there's yeah. shiny objects That's, you can chase, yeah. you know, is sort of what differentiates people. And so, you know, for us, this is an exciting time. We just announced a bunch more funding, you know, uh, with, with baseline uh, growth capital. We just announced, you know, more hires. We just announced more uh, divisions. You know, we're going into this expansion mode because all the distractions are gone. We've got a reliable oh. model. And it's like, now's the time to grab as much market share, mind share as possible, you know, and we're not the type of, you know, company that goes out and does a bunch of hype. Would much rather build something real and then talk about what we've built, than go out there and, and do a bunch of hype. And so, you know, I think we're, we're just getting to that point where we've built these divisions, we have all these operations, people are really starting to see the benefits of the model that we've built. You know, it's like, oh, these are one of, these are one of the guys that are really going to grow and, and uh, you know, persist uh, the next 10, 20 years. And that's, that's how I think about it. Like almost everybody on our team, like me and Jonathan Mohan and others have been yeah. around for 10 years in this industry. Like yeah. this isn't our first bear market and we're not going anywhere. <laughs> this, is, this is our thing the next 10, 20 years, right? And so, you know, that's, that's I think, the big differentiator. And I think that's that's the other thing, right? The other argument you constantly hear a lot is is oh, it's too late. I missed the boat. It's ah oh, man, like, I shouldn't get in there. It's like it's it's and you're even you know it's like you just said it now. I'm in this for another twenty years. Right? We're so early in this evolution that I think it's it, the opportunities now, right? And every time you 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 really build relationships in bear markets you really find out who true believers are and who aren't and i think that to me is a real important insight as to why the bear market is really the time to really build relationships that sustain and provide you in-depth 
advice around how to be successful in this market and where to put your money and how to invest versus when it's already a bull market, it's booming and I just want to go in because this guy told me it's going to go, it's going to go to the moon, go, you know, sort of, I just feel that whole mentality is just wrong. Yep. No, I, I agree. Um, you know, it, it's, it's funny though, in 2012, I yeah. had the same feelings. I thought I was so late to the party. How did I not hear about this in 2009? What was I doing Thank that I was so you. distracted to not yeah. see Bitcoin, you know, three years earlier? You're like, normally I'm a very early adopter. Like the first thousand people, like, you know, here it is. It's already been around for three years. Bitcoins are $10. They were yeah. like a yeah. penny. They were like a dollar. How did I, <laughs> how did I miss out on that? <laughs> like, you know, but, you know, you hear about it when you hear about it. And the truth is we're still so early. Think yeah. about it this way. I don't think anyone at this point would debate in the future, whether it's 20 years or 50 years from now, every asset in the world is going to be on a blockchain, right? Yeah. It's immutable. It's transparent. It's automated. 100%. It's smart contracts. Yeah. So all well, yeah. right? Stocks, real estate, currencies, everything, right? There's like $400 trillion of global wealth. Right, yep. we're one trillion dollars in to a four hundred trillion dollar transition. We are zero point two five percent of the totally. way there, right? Yep. And in though in an exponential, when it's something is doubling, once you get to one percent, you're half the way there, yep. right? That's that's really the inflection point yep. in that adoption curve, right? And so you know we're getting pretty close to that inflection point. Um, we're getting close to that, that 1% level, but it took us 12 years to get to that 1%. It'll probably take us another 12 years, but we're talking about going from a $1 trillion industry to a $400 trillion industry in the next decade and a half. You know, that's where we're headed. So if that's your fundamental view, like get on board, mm -hmm. grab an oar, you know, help out yeah. a project, you know, work on some open source, get involved however you can. Even if it's just understanding how this stuff works and becoming part of the community, you know, you're going to be so much further along than anybody else that you know. Like you're probably the first person in your social group that knows about this. It's like being the first guy that really understood the internet in your yeah. social group in 1997. Yeah. That was really useful. That could guide That's your useful. career. That could guide like, you know, what's going to work and not work. And don't, maybe don't go into that publishing you know, newspaper job, <laughs> like maybe you should make a website instead. Like all those insights come out yeah. of understanding that fundamental trend, right? And so to me, you know, we're we're still so early. We're just getting to the point where such amazingly skilled people are seeing something in Web3 that catches their attention because it's relevant to their passion, their interest, right? That was the early internet. People are dismissive because it doesn't do anything for me. But all of a sudden when it did, yeah something they cared about, then they got involved in the internet. So figure out what what that is for you, but but jump in, man. This is this is the time. You're gonna you're gonna brag to people in 10 years, oh yeah, I got involved in 2022. I was I was super <laughs> early on like 2022. Wow. How did you hear? Oh well I listened to this podcast and there's this great guy Stefan and he 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 explained it all to me. And it's like, you know, that's that's always going to be the case, right? So, you know, it's the old, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. The next best time is today, 
right? So jump in. This is uh, it's a fun industry to be involved in. Yeah, and I think that's 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 sort of my view. It's like a fun industry. The people are great. You know, you are you do have to learn on your own. You will make mistakes, but but that's all a part of growing up in life. And um, you know, this is still super early. And if the audience isn't excited after listening to this podcast, and we're on a trajectory to a four hundred trillion dollar tokenization of the planet with governance and smart contracts then I don't know what will convince you and get you across the line. And if it's not, reach out to any of us on, on Twitter, on Signal, on any of these other channels. I think we're all available and, and love to bring good talent into this ecosystem. How can they people get in touch with you, David? I mean, what's what's is it Twitter or your Medium post? Where, where's the best place to read up about you and, and follow you and, and, and stay in touch with your thinking and philosophy? Uh, Twitter is pretty easy. Uh, it's D Johnston, E as in Echo, C as in Charlie. So D Johnston, EC um, is my Twitter handle. I think it's the same on Medium. Um, but yeah, I yep. tend to, to write on there about sort of this philosophy and economics and decentralization and DLTX and all the rest. Um, but yeah, uh, follow me on there. You know, you can kind of have some fun and go through the history of the Medium posts. If you scroll all the way to the back, you'll find, you know, the general theory of decentralized applications, right? Coining the term dApps and the first, you know, information yeah. report on Ethereum and a lot of the early protocols. So there's definitely some fun history in there. Um, and yeah, I mean, to your point, the cool thing is there's no barriers, right? This is all open source. Yeah. There's no people exactly. trying to like keep corporate secrets to themselves. And like, it's going to be 14 years before any of this, you know, gets into the rest of the economy. As soon as something is invented in crypto, boom, everybody has got it, right? The whole industry yep. rolled it out. Um, and so that's that's why things move so fast. It's because they can move so fast because they're all built on open source, right? So appreciate what you're doing to, to spread the good word, my friend. Yeah. No, thank you, David. Um, always super excited. Love hanging with you. And if any of you go to Puerto Rico, he hosts amazing meetups and, uh, and events. And if not in Puerto Rico, it's at any of the other conferences around the world. So uh, super good network, um, DLTX, check them out as well. And if you don't have their stock, you can buy their stock to get into mining, into a decentralized mining. So thank you, David. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights and always a pleasure. You too, my friend. Thanks. This was Stefan Roost and David Johnston. You can follow David on Twitter at djohnstonec. That's D-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N-E-C. You can also follow Stefan on Twitter at sroost99. That's S-R-U-S-T-9-9. And you can find the Super Excited with Stefan Roost podcast on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube on the Stefan Roost channel. Thank you for listening.